Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Tatiana, one of your hosts tonight. I'm Max. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our third episode of the season. I'm Christina. As Max said, if you are joining our big virtual roundtable tonight, this is the third episode of our eighth season entitled State of Emergency. And I'm Karen. And in this episode, two authors explore the perspective of individuals directly impacted by two separate states of emergency. This is a story by a returning author to the podcast, Catherine. Catherine Hunter is an alumni of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, class of 2023. She majored in culture, crime, and deviant studies, so has found her passions in the arts. Always an avid writer, she chose to take the creative nonfiction writing course offered at John Jay for the sheer enjoyment and curiosity as to what creative nonfiction really was. In it, she found a new love for the craft of both memoir and literary journalism. Post-grad, she continued with these crafts as well as continuing with her first loves, poetry and playwriting. She describes her work as sorrowful hopefulness with the hint of whimsy that she hopes others love as much as she loved writing them. Let's take a listen to Catherine's literary journalism piece entitled, For Sacramento's Homeless Population, Summertime is About Surviving the Heat. This following story was also published as an opinion piece in the Sacramento Bee on August 7, 2023. A warning that this story immediately touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. To some residents of Sacramento, Cesar Chavez Plaza is an eyesore, with anywhere from 20 to 30 or more unhoused individuals set up in tents, sprawled out in the sun, or gathered in small groups around the fountain. But for the folks who spend their days or nights there, the park is their home. It's a home with no air conditioning, water, or fans. And in the summertime, when Sacramento sees triple-digit temperatures, no one feels the impact of the heat more than the city's unhoused residents. In the summer of 2021, the weather was relentless. I called up two friends and told them my plan. They brought the coolers, I bought the water, and together we drove to Cesar Chavez Plaza. We hadn't been out of the car for more than two minutes before Oliver, who calls Cesar Chavez Plaza his home, appeared next to us. After drinking an entire water bottle in one single gulp, Oliver asked if he could help us distribute waters around the park. Afterwards, we got to chatting, and I came to find out how Oliver had ended up here. Decades ago, Oliver suffered a brain injury in a work accident. He asked my friends and I how old we were, and when we told him we were in our early 20s, he said that at our age, he thought he was going to rule the world. He had his whole life ahead of him, a good job, good money, and plenty of people around. After his injury, though, things stopped going his way. He could no longer work. He lost a few good friends, and then when the last people in his life who cared enough to take care of him died, he no longer had a home. You're so much closer to this than you'd ever believe, Oliver warned me. Just a couple bad days and you're standing right where I am. 
When I asked Oliver about the change in heat over the last few decades, he told me there is nothing like the heat of recent years. While heat waves are nothing new in Sacramento, in the last few years, they've gotten much worse. In fact, according to California's fourth climate change assessment, average global temperatures are expected to increase by at least 2.7 degrees by the year 2039. Heat waves are also expected to have higher daytime and nighttime temperatures last much longer and spread much farther. While 2039 may seem like a long way away, no one knows better than the residents of Cesar Chavez Plaza that you don't have to wait a couple decades to feel that summers have gotten hotter. One woman I talked to in the park said, there is no escape from the heat. We have nothing that helps and things have gotten much worse, she told me. It's always too hot. Vulnerable populations like migrant workers, individuals under the poverty line, the elderly and the unhoused are most at risk for sickness or death in extreme weather conditions. As temperatures continue to rise, so does the death count. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, an average of 702 heat-related deaths occur every year. As extreme heat becomes a more frequent norm in Sacramento, it seems that resources and aid for those most in need are scarce. Cooling centers in Sacramento are available, but the unhoused residents of Cesar Chavez Plaza mentioned how difficult these shelters are to actually get to because of how far away they're usually located. Some folks said that when they do go to these shelters, they are not allowed to bring personal items, so many refuse to go. Each time I was able to make a trip to Cesar Chavez Plaza that summer to distribute water, I wondered where the help was. If I wasn't there to offer water, who was? Where was the city? Why has there not been a better policy to help our unhoused neighbors in Sacramento survive the heat? For the city's unhoused residents, it's not about being uncomfortable in the heat. It's about surviving it. As my friends and I climbed into my car to leave Cesar Chavez Plaza for the last time that summer, I took a moment to look back at the park one last time. I watched as Oliver looked around aimlessly, appearing not to know what to do next or where to go. As we drove away from the park, all I could think was, what do we do now? Wow. Wow. God. What a what a powerful final like yeah. line and delivery. That was mm-hmm. super deliver. Good question too. Before we begin this episode, we want to acknowledge that stories with a focus on the unhoused experience can hit some listeners in an especially hard way. If you are struggling with the topic of the story, there are resources available to you. The National Coalition for the Homeless has a goal to end homelessness and help those who are already unhoused or on the verge of losing their homes. You can find out more by visiting nationalhomeless.org. Yes, that is a great point. And thank you again, Katie, for bringing us some other experiences to kind of talk about today. Um, This is your second time on the podcast, and we are so happy that you have no shortage of great stories to share with us. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm just so honored that you guys even wanted to have me back. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to talk about your piece today. We loved your last one so much. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so jumping right into it, Katie, um, an important part of this piece was when Oliver mentioned that the two of you were not so different 
quote, just a couple of bad days and you're standing right where I am, end quote. After hearing this, has your perspective on yourself and the world around you changed in any way? Yeah, I mean, God, especially like this year, um, I, I told a friend the other day because after I graduated, I just sort of had like, there were like a couple months where I got into really like sticky situations where like, you know, I had told a, a employer that I had got accepted at like another job that was supposed to be starting in a month. And I had trusted her that I was like, kind of being polite and letting her know early mm -hmm. about it. And then she just sort of silently fired me. And I, oh, was, wow. yeah, I was out of work for a month. And I've also just injured myself and I'll be out of work for a little bit. And I, I said to my friend, I was like, you know, like, I'm, I'm so appreciative for the support that I do have and, and that my family and my friends like, will are willing to like, take care of me the way that they have. Cause like, I I I would be out on the streets. I really yeah. like, just been on my last dollar for for the majority of this year. So I I think that was kind of his point was that you know when things are going good they're going good, but you just have a couple of bad days and it's you're it's done. It's over. Like you just right. fall through so much easier than you think you ever would so right if you don't have support mm -hmm. a couple mm -hmm. bad days is all it takes if you don't have a safety net yeah and it's, like the crazy and sad part is too like even if you do sometimes it can all just come crashing down like right. that support can just immediately be taken back because True. of something that say was out of your hands it's, it's such a scary like reality that we have to think about and how like and everything and Mm -hmm. Yeah, he had said too that like it was like he had been taken care of and then he had family members die and like for right. me my my biggest support has been my mom and thankfully she's been in a position to help me uh but she's also 65 and like right. <laughs> I I can't rely on her for like decades worth of um support so it was really like shocking to just be like yeah at, at one point like I won't have that safety net like I'll really just be on my own the way that mm -hmm. he sort of just woke up one day and was on his own as well it's it's yeah so truly scary especially when our not not to get on a soapbox but our survival is tied to capital and some of that is just pure luck sometimes and that is scary to one day like well, right. And like our worth, our worth is tied to our productivity. So mm -hmm. like, if you can't be productive and if you can't, you know, if you can't work, it's like the priority is what can you give? Not, you know, how can we take care? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is a truly, the fact that that is problematic. Right. Systematic. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll leave it at, um, and what makes this part of, part of this piece so special as well is that it's so grounded in fact. Um, we we see some of the like personal emotionality and how close you got to someone who's in a position that millions experience and also was grounded in the fact that 
this is a condition that millions experience. And with literary journalism, um, talking about like the 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 avenue which you told his story and also some of your reflections and also fact, it includes references to articles as your story does. And we wanted to just ask, how was the process of incorporating things like citations and references into a story without disrupting the flow of the narrative? Mm -hmm. Well, I was, yeah, thankfully, I had the advantage of knowing that these articles already kind of existed. So I had taken like a, a climate justice focused class the semester before the summer that this all happened. And a lot of my research that I had done in that class was based around like heat related deaths or like migrant workers and, and oh wow yeah who had just like there had been like a huge heat wave in Portland and then it ended up being that like a, a mass amount of people had died and I had I believe it was like an NPR podcast or or something along that lines so I, I was very grateful that I already knew that this information existed I think there's nothing worse that, that I like have found myself in a position of than like having the idea to write something and mm -hmm. then like going to find the facts or the information and going like uh-oh <laughs> this doesn't really like support what I'm wow. saying so mm -hmm. I I felt very fortunate that these kind of coincided at the same time that I had known about this previous information and then also got to witness it firsthand and sort of marry them together the witnessing and being present and that emotional tie of of watching what was actually happening as well as just already having that information and having to just mm -hmm. kind of go through some old articles that I had already previously read yeah did Katie did you take um creative nonfiction like did you were did you learn about literary journalism in one class and then in the same semester you were taking the climate justice class no so it was kind of weird I had taken my climate justice class was actually one of the first classes that I ever took at John Jay wow. and then my last class yeah was creative nonfiction. and wow. I actually I don't I I was telling my sister about this story and that I was going to be on the podcast and I like was hit with a memory that I had actually written another version of this originally that was entirely scientific because I had been I, I think I was like trying to get a internship at like Scientific American or something so I had like written this but it was only like just the facts and and there was like no mention of Oliver or anything so when wow. I took your class mm -hmm. and, and you brought up like literary journalism and I think we read the piece of someone who had been following um uh people trying to cross the border from Mexico into the United States right I I was like oh my gosh like that's what this piece should mm -hmm. have been yeah right. the like, human angle yeah I I have that like firsthand perspective I hadn't even like thought of that while I was doing it I just oh. like oh how crazy that like I was studying this and now I'm seeing it firsthand and then just felt incredibly grateful that I had something to even write for that assignment. Yeah. Like, oh, huge. Like, I don't have to, like, try to come up with something. It was already sort of there to begin with. 
Oh, yeah, that's so funny that this came up because what made me obsessed with your piece was the fact that a few semesters ago I took a journalism class and as I was reading your piece I was thinking about all the things that I learned and you just did such a great job of executing that and making this like journalistic piece interesting and engaging mm-hmm. and what I learned from that class was that journalism is everywhere and you can find a story and in, in pretty much anything like people have taken stories um from the sentinel they've written about like why are the elevators so slow or like what was this community um hour event about so when I was reading your story I was wondering at the part where you were delivering the waters did you have that kind of moment like oh this is a story like I could write about this or did that come to you later yeah Um, no that's that's what's so funny about it is it hadn't even occurred to me at all (laughs) like at that point of my life I mean I was yeah, I was one semester in, I think I was like still sort of thinking that I would go down like more of like a crime-based path or like career at the time. And it's funny that you mentioned like taking that journalism class and and feeling like you're like seeing all these things because to me, I couldn't stop thinking about how much it reminded me of like ethnographic research, like anthropology because that's what I ended up yes, sort of yes. yeah, like specializing in mm. at my time at John Jay, what my like focus was on. So that's why I think that when we were studying literary journalism, I just became so obsessed with it because as much as I love anthropology with my whole heart, I I have a very hard time uh, focusing on things for long periods of time <laughs> and Ooh. anthropology and ethnographic research is like years and years of you like being in like one community studying one thing and I just sort of was like I don't know if I'm the type of person to like live someplace for five years and like fully delve into like an issue like this mm-hmm. I loved literary journalism because I felt like it was more like flash anthropology, like just a very Wow, flash anthropology. I love that. Which I don't give me credit for it because that is that is a niche. Oh, (laughs) it's a thing? Love it. And and I I had heard about it the semester before in another like anthro class that I had taken. So then when we were writing it, I was like, I was like, I don't see the difference. Like this feels one and the same to me except that like with flash anthropology you are trying to it is more research-based so you're trying to kind of like push out um like something that you've discovered I feel like with literary journalism you're just putting more empathy and story to something that kind of already exists and and bringing it to light in a way that people can actually relate to and and understand the impact of right yeah it's about it's not, sharing, yeah. It's not like new or expansive like research. It is like a new perspective of what like already exists. Yeah, Does that you're, not, you're not trying to like explain why a certain community like behaves a certain way. It just feels more like it, it's more individual based. Like you can tell a story about one person and and it doesn't really explain a whole like condition or cultural practice it just sort mm-hmm. of is like well this is just a true story that mm-hmm. has like a fact- window 
yeah, a bigger idea behind it. I see. Yes. Like you're, you're, sorry. Just because literary <laughs> journalism was one of those that I, I don't think I handed in that essay. So, so understanding why it is like someone's passion and, 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 having that little bit of like oh this is the draw to it it's not that you want to revisit Karen (laughs) (laughs) you want to turn it in late huh (laughs) and Christina's taking this class next semester so you'll be ready for that unit (laughs) if I can't sell that unit I'm gonna get Katie to zoom in and explain to everyone what literary journalism is because clearly she did better than me because Karen's excited about it now Oh my gosh. Madrazo, well, can I still get credit if it's about seven years late? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Karen got a seven-year extension on her literary journalism <laughs> micro-essay. I just got really oh, busy at the time. That's my really, bad. You, you just got me excited. You got me re-excited about the genre too. You, I, I love hearing you talk about it. It's awesome. I, mean, I, I hope you feel like you did some justice to it because you are who inspired me originally. <laughs> and I was sitting there like just absolutely floored that like kind of, ex- I, I felt almost like, because I also have like a theater background, like storytelling and like mm. I had already kind of written, but I, I personally just don't really care for fiction that much I was like I just don't like making things up <laughs> so like yeah me neither I prefer yeah. yeah so sitting there while you were like explaining what it was I think I maybe even like called my mom after that class and was just like did you know this exists <laughs> like this is it like I think this is exactly what everything has been leading me to like right the crime perfect. stuff the journalism yeah. the storytelling the theater the the anthro yeah like just everything and like I know I was thinking about it too I was like I I whenever I think of like who I want to be when I'm older or what I want like my career to look like I always think of like I just want to be somewhere weird at weird times like (laughs) I don't I don't like like consistency or structure I want to just wake up on like a Tuesday at six in the morning and be in the middle of New Mexico trying to like tell a story you know like I was like that just sounds so much fun to me to just like go wherever it takes me so I was like wow this is like kind of exactly what I've always wanted (laughs) yeah like having a new experience every day Mm-hmm. yeah well and you know a lot of people I'm sure walk past that encampment and wouldn't dream of stepping in and just talking to people you know and that's that's the difference it uh, is actually I I will say what's really weird and, and what I didn't include because it it didn't really add much to the piece but there's like a restaurant inside the park that has like patio seating so it was always just very like to go in and be doing that work. Yeah, the juxtaposition between watching people like drink and eat and they're all dressed very like nicely. And this is obviously like how they're s- spending like their Saturday brunch, like going out. Wow. Not even like 10 feet away, you have someone who's like 
moaning in pain because it's so hot and wow yeah they're like in like they're just like dying like it looked like they were dying and and people are just like kind of chit-chatting away and it's like of, of course like that is just kind of the state of the world and horrible things happen and you kind of just continue on and and have to live life but to see it so like glaring like right there right, right there in your face mm-hmm. yeah like people continuing to drink and chit chat about whatever was going on while these people like this was their home essentially wow. and, and they were kind of literally like cast to the side and blatantly ignored while while people were like enjoying their day out wow, wow. yeah for sure and to add on to that while reading your story like I couldn't help but wonder um what conditions that the pandemic we just and are currently experiencing could have contributed to Mm -hmm. in terms of homelessness oh yeah as you got to know the people residing at Cesar Chavez Plaza did the effects of COVID-19 come up as one of the factors that led to such a disarrayed group of people and what were the effects that COVID had in general within that population you know, surprisingly, that wasn't something that really came up. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something. Were you there before or after? I was there after. During. So this or was summer, oh. yeah, summer of 2020. I'm forgetting the timeline. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It was it was the summer of 2021. Yeah. Because I had yeah I was in New York oh, okay. in summer of 2020, and then the summer of 2021, I was there. And I don't know, maybe like enough time had gone by um, that it just wasn't as prevalent or as pressing matter. But even, I, I don't know, even the the people themselves, like when I was talking to them, I imagine that like all of that just felt very like distant and far. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if people, the majority of the time were complaining about like having to be stuck in their homes and you right. don't they're outside. Someone, yeah. Like I, I don't think it was a, that big of a deal to them or, or something. Interesting. That was really, yeah. I will yeah. say that, like it did for me personally, I feel like the pandemic had a huge influence on me even going in and 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 doing that stuff because I I hadn't I had been living in New York through the majority of the pandemic and I was seeing firsthand like people being affected by it and a lot of people who were unhoused in my area who I tried to like help out and and give masks to and and make sure that like they were okay I I think, you know, for a lot of people, just 2020 in general pushed to the front of their minds a lot of, like, pressing matters that hadn't quite been there before Mm -hmm. or things that they, like, sort of knew but hadn't really seen. So for me, I think that's, like, after having gone through that and seen everything that I had when I went home... And I was there for the summers. I I don't know if I would have had that thought to even like go in to the park because we'd had like heat waves my entire life. And maybe the age 
kind of you know affected my ability to want to like go in at 16 to to this park to like help out but I, I think just more so like I personally just felt like I had so much more responsibility to not sit around by my pool drinking margaritas oh, yeah <laughs> actually like go to people who for the first time I had like really recognized needed someone to help them so that would I think that's kind of the way that COVID influenced this experience and and my recognition and willingness to go in and do that at the time and Katie we always ask at the end of these interviews what would you like listeners to take away but um I was wondering just hearing you speak about it the the last thing you say is what do we do now and for me, I felt like, wow, is this story supposed to be? Like, what do we do now? Is this the next step? Is this how I spread the word and, and get everything out there? Is is that how you intended it to be? Or did you have another thing that you had in mind as like the next steps? No, yeah, I, I think that I wrote that. It took me forever to figure. I think I had like 10 different questions that I had like, typed out and and I had thought of and even the ending itself like there was so much more that I could have said like you know in in reality I I actually was like sobbing in the car <laughs> as I like drove away because I was just like so upset and Oliver had reminded me so much of my father who was like the same age and having that parallel there and be like god what what a different life that like Oliver could have lived like I was just a, a blubbering baby <laughs> all the way <laughs> back home. But I I think I landed on what do we do now because it's something that I still ask myself, okay. you know, with, with everything that I've learned in school and the things that I've tried to implement in my life. And it it's just really hard. I, I find even now, like as I've gotten older, like I do just feel kind of hopeless like I want for unhoused individuals to be treated fairly and you know made a priority in our society and and given value but it feels a lot of times like there's just so many things set in place that are preventing that from happening it's like okay, step one, let's remove capitalism first. <laughs> so then we can value individuals not based off of like their economic class. And then you're like, okay, well, how do I overthrow capitalism? I'm just like <laughs> a 24 year old girl in New York. Like I, <laughs> I'm working up against, I, I always kind of describe it as like, I feel like I'm trying to catch a boulder that was pushed down a hill a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just trying to like catch up and stop it before it destroys everything. But I, but I really, I'm glad that that's what I ended on too. Cause I actually had, so I, one of my roommates, roommates right now that I live with is a friend from high school who grew up in the same area as me. And when they published the story her father is the one who actually got a physical copy for me so that he could send it to me in New York. And apparently, like, he read it and he felt so moved by it that 
uh, it was published in August and I think we had another heat wave this year he went out and he brought water oh, wow oh my god that is and he yeah. and he started talking to the people and he like made and who a- knows other people might have too and you just don't know that yeah and yeah and that's that's the only account that I know like personally who like felt inspired by it and it almost oh god it's like I am just a big crybaby I try not to <laughs> but it, it just it had moved me so much that like you know I mean not only just that people were reading what I had written because of course I just assumed that it was like gonna get published and then like disappear into the ether but people read it and then like I had actually made a difference I had changed I put another bottle of water into someone's hands just by telling people about this experience and how important it was and I've been wanting to like do some research or see if there was anything that had kind of come out of it like maybe Sacramento kind of felt a call to action or something but even even something that is that can feel like tiny like that just makes the biggest difference and I just was so incredibly proud that that that's what came of this piece above everything else that has happened your impact yeah your direct impact Mm -hmm. incredible yeah thank you so much for sharing this story and being so eloquent in describing everything it's been wonderful thank you so much thank you for saying I'm eloquent I felt bad with the last interview I felt like I just like did not answer questions This story is by a reoccurring host on the podcast, Sophia. Sophia is a recent John Jay graduate and storyteller. The two short stories you'll hear today are excerpts from her senior thesis project, The Bridge, Two Countries, Two Cultures, One Daughter Between Them. Sophia spent the entirety of her senior year working alongside Professor Andrea Clark and interviewing with her good friend, Victoria Karpowitz. The Bridge is a compilation of the life stories of one Polish-American immigrant family in New York City. Each vignette offers a window into the immigrant experience through the eyes of a first-gen daughter. Let's take a listen to this piece entitled The Bridge. Two countries, two cultures, one daughter between them. A warning that this story touches on sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. It is a cloudy mid-October day in Brooklyn, and the city is as solemn as the sky above it. The air is thick and chalky and heavy. Zbigniew turns his key in the front door of his apartment building and sighs. His wife, Barbara, and their infant daughter, Victoria, are just a few flights above him. He struggles to lift his feet high enough as he climbs each stair and pauses midway up to wipe some sweat off of his forehead with the back of his hand. His wrist is wet now too and smudged gray. He stops again for a break on the second floor landing and bends over as his body is racked by a dry heaving cough. It's quiet in Brooklyn, but the metallic scraping of the machinery and rushed walkie-talkie conversations ring in his head. It's been a month since Abignev and his bestos handler, 
was first called to the sight of the fallen, mangled, smoking Twin Towers. He tried to approach this job like he would any other and showed up alongside his team, freshly uniformed in mid-September. However, Spignev quickly understood that the 9-11 job was as much a body retrieval effort as it was a cleanup. With each day he spent on the pile, the sun shone a little less bright. He reaches the top of the stairwell and Barbara appears in the apartment doorway. Hello, moi drogi, she says to her husband. Zbigniew looks over to her. His wife's hands are knitted at her waist and her eyebrows are stitched together. It's the same look she gave him when they watched the planes hit the towers on TV, and it seems like it's never left her face since. He figures he must look as bad as he's been feeling. I watched the news this afternoon after I put Victoria down, Barbara says. It looks like we're making some progress. Spignev nods. He mechanically strips off his jacket and the motion causes his thick, drooping utility gloves to fall from his pocket. When the gloves hit the floor, dust furls out around them like snow. Mama made us bigos today, Barbara says. They finally had the good kielbasa at the deli. It's been cooking since this morning and it smelled great in the house today. Spignev shakes his head. I can't clear that crap out of my nose, Barbara. Nothing is the same anymore. The smell of pulverized buildings, burning metal, and death was ever-present, unrelenting for Zbigniew and his team. He sighs and bends down to pull off his socks. I know, my love, I know. Come in, I'll fix you a bowl of the stew. I'm going to shower first. Zbigniew coughs so forcefully that he has to grab onto the wall to steady himself. Barbara winces while he catches his breath, and when he does, he walks past her and into the bathroom. After he closes the door, he spots his reflection in the mirror. His hair is matted. The skin on his face is coated in a layer of dust, except for the smeared spot where he wiped away his sweat. He grabs a tissue from the bright yellow box on the back of the toilet and blows. His snot is gray, like his clothes, like the sky, like the world around him. He sighs and turns on the hot water. After his shower, he's not hungry. Barbara leaves his bowl in the fridge, next to all the others, just in case he wants it later. On her way into the bedroom, she catches him in the nursery, standing over Victoria's crib. The baby is sleeping, and her little chest rises and falls intermittently. How many kids will never wake up and see their parents again? She's wearing a onesie decorated with pink, pillowy flowers, and her cheeks are flushed. How could they raise a daughter in a world where things as bad as this are possible? Barbara moves closer to her husband, and Zbigniew places his arm around her shoulders. His eyes are closed, and they stand in silence. <sighs> Part 2. The Yellow Rose Barbara kneels behind Victoria. One after the other, she crisscrosses three sections of her daughter's hair. Left, right, left, right. Victoria winces from her cross-legged seat in front of the TV and distracts herself with an episode of Scooby-Doo. A hefty pile of bills is stacked on the coffee table behind them, and Barbara makes a mental note to look them over later tonight, when her and Victoria get back home. Tata is excited to see you, Barbara explains through the left corner of her mouth. She's holding a hair tie on the opposite side. How do you feel today, she asks. Like Shaggy, scared and like she wants to run away and hide. I miss him, Victoria says. 
I want him to come back home. We'll see what the doctors say, Kohanye, Barbara says, and she wraps the tie around the bottom of the braid. Piekni. She flips off the TV and grabs her daughter's chin. You're beautiful. Mama helps Victoria on with her bright yellow raincoat, then shrugs on her own. She grabs the house keys and what's left of the cash off the entryway bench by the front door. We'll hit the store on the way over, okay? Victoria nods, and mother and daughter set out to the hospital. Victoria is struck by how white everything is as she wanders down the long oncology ward hallway. She looks up at Mama, who's counting the room numbers that whiz by them in Polish as they walk. Barbara hopes Zbigniew is well enough today to talk to Victoria. She hopes her little girl can understand. Ah, here we are. Mama leads Victoria into a room at the end of the hallway, on their right. A man coughs behind the curtain closest to the door, and a sliver of daylight peeks through the blinds in the back side of the room. Follow me, Mama says, and she leads Victoria towards the sun. Victoria can't help how fast her heart starts beating when she first sees her dad. Mama had explained that he was getting surgery and that he had to sleep at the hospital for a while, but Victoria never knew his leg would be bandaged like the mummies from ancient Egypt or suspended on a sling from the ceiling. You have a visitor, Mama calls out. Spigniew's eyes drift open and he does a half sit up in bed. His face scrunches as he tries to shimmy his body upright. Slow, Spigniew, Mama says. My girls, Tata says. His voice is low and raspy. Mama walks over to help him and plant a quick kiss on his forehead. Tata beckons his daughter to him. Come here, Victoria. Victoria's legs feel frozen, but they move her closer all on their own. It feels weird seeing her dad like this. She almost can't believe that this is the same man who changes the tires on the pickup, carries her on his shoulders when she gets too tired to walk, and hangs off the side of buildings for work. Victoria snuck you in a surprise, Barbara explains over the beeping of his monitors. She picked it out all on her own. Tata's baby blue eyes are fixed on Victoria. She can feel them. As she gets closer, she notices that they're watery. It's weird for Victoria. Tata's never cried around her before. She pulls her hand from behind her back and holds out a yellow rose. This is for me? Tata asks. Victoria nods. I've never gotten a flower before, he says, and he smiles at his daughter and his wife. Tata pulls Victoria into his chest. His skin is warm. Thank you, he says, and he kisses his daughter's braids. It's quiet until a pair of footsteps from the hallway turn into the room. Hello, doctor, Barbara says in her heavily accented English. Hello, Miss Karpowitz, and I see your little one came to visit today. That's my daughter, Victoria. Zbigniew, I'm glad you're awake. We have some updates for you this morning. Barbara picks at her cuticles and the doctor continues. I haven't seen the translator around yet but I wanted to let you know that the skin muscle graft went really well. With sarcoma as advanced as yours, you're one of the lucky ones. If it had spread, you could have lost your whole leg, or worse. Tata squirms in his bed. We have to keep a close eye on this, Bignev. There's always the chance that in the future... I'm sorry to cut you off, doctor, but we should wait for the translator, Mama says. So Bignev is tired, and we have trouble understanding the medical terms. 
The doctor smiles. No problem. I'll be back to check in later. What is sarcoma? Victoria asks. She looks up at the bandages and the machines and her father lying still in the middle of it all. His heart monitor beeps steadily. Mama hesitates. Let's let your father rest, she finally says. And Tata's blue eyes flutter closed. Wow. What a amazing story. Heart. Wrenching. Wrenching ending. Yeah. I think that was the final scene. I wasn't expecting it to end like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. Sophia, thank you so much for sharing a piece of your senior thesis memoir. We are happy to have read your beautiful story and to have you back on the show. Thank you. So sweet. To begin, um, I noticed that part one goes into great depth about Zivignu's feelings following a difficult day working as an asbestos handler, but he felt even more miserable because of the Twin Towers repercussions. I saw that you made use of similes and vivid imagery throughout your piece, such as when you state his hair is matted, the skin on his face is coated in a layer of dust, except for the smeared spot where he wipes away his sweat. He grabs a tissue from the bright yellow box on the back of the toilet and blows. His snot is gray, like his clothes, like the sky, like the world around him. What influenced you to write your piece in this way? Hmm. I really love that question because that's also one of the parts that I wrote that I feel like I'm most proud of. And I think I feel the most proud of it because... I think it's a good representation of what this memoir is as a whole because it's a super, super quiet moment. And I think it's like a reflective moment as well. It's when the bathroom door is closed and this character in our piece is all alone. And I think that's when you really get to like the nitty gritty of what uh, characters and pieces are feeling. and. I think also why this kind of thing is important and why these quiet stories and everyday kind of stories are important, where this is a guy coming home from work at the end of the day. And it is extraordinary circumstances because it is 9-11, but something right. like that, where someone's coming home from a day of work, um, how we often talk about in creative nonfiction, and I know you guys all know very well, is that there's sacred in the mundane. And I think- mm -hmm. These are yep. one of those moments for sure. So I'm super proud of this part. And thank you for recognizing how beautiful it is because yeah, I loved it. Absolutely. That was honestly my favorite line. Like just the use of imagery. Like it's like I was there and I saw everything happen. I loved it. You did amazing. I'm so glad you brought up the sacred and the mundane, the, the snot being the mundane, the sacred being this massive loss and the remembrance of the massive loss. Yeah yeah mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful thank you guys <laughs> yeah really really loved your piece I really like the imagery that you included as well I love that picture of Victoria holding the the yellow roses and mm -hmm. it made me wonder what your process was like choosing which pictures you used in the piece like did you collaborate with Victoria on like where to orient them in the story um, and how important did you feel the photos were to the story yourself? Oh, wow. That's a super cool question. Um, so I worked with 
Professor Andrea Clark on this project. And okay. shout out to Professor Clark. She's literally the best. <laughs> and this was sort of like an offshoot of the regular honors course of what you do for your capstone, where I got to have a little more like creative freedom with what I was doing. Okay. So, mm -hmm. He was the type of professor that was literally like the most encouraging and like thoughtful person. So the best person I could have worked with on this. I'm so happy we got put together. But she always encouraged me to use multimedia if it felt like it was the right way to go. Okay. And for this project, especially as a writer, and I think you guys can all relate because I've read all your work and it's super good. Okay. But when you're trying to... Um, put yourself in the shoes of another person or write something super vividly, it's really important for me to have the visual cues and know where I'm going mm -hmm. with something for like details and all that type of stuff. So for this, it really helped because I was trying to be as accurate as possible with depicting someone's culture. Mm -hmm. And that felt like a really um, important thing to get right. So having the photographs of her when she was a little kid and like, her very specific outfits and the way she did her hair and the way the food looked and all that type of stuff, I felt like was super important to get right. So having the photographs as I wrote was really helpful. And then on another level, thinking about it from like the reader's point of view, mm -hmm. it's always so nice to have photos when you're reading a book and then you could flip to the middle part and like see all the photos with their little captions and stuff. So Yes, Victoria and I did work on that together. She sent me a whole bunch of photos I've never seen before, which was super cool. And yeah, we worked on it. It was collaborative in every way it could have been. And it really brought the story to life. Like it, it's your writing is very beautiful and and really draws you in. But as like when you add the pictures to it, it's like it's even better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like you're right there. Uh huh. You. Sophia, I'd love to know, uh, like amongst the collaboration, if Victoria felt very personal about any of the photos or like if she really pushed for some to be featured or maybe like, I don't know, I get kind of shy with some of like my childhood photos. I'm like, you know, I don't want you to see that. <laughs> like if, if there were just some that she was like, no, this is what I think is important or like, I don't want that one to be seen. Hmm. I don't think any got cut. That's a really interesting question. I think everyone that she sent to me, she was very intentional of like, oh, this is how my dress looked. This is how my hair looked. And was just like super in the know of how she wanted things depicted. Yes, yeah, so she curated. She yeah. curated. Mm -hmm. That's she, a perfect way. <laughs> yes. Well, it wasn't like mom sending them, sending them over and you're like... <laughs> Yeah, I just I feel like that adds like such another layer of, of depth to like the importance of the photos is knowing that Victoria like chose them personally and was like, mm -hmm. this is what I want people to see as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sort of like pivoting off of like, I feel like what is a very important aspect recognized about this piece is that it is uh, talking about someone else's life and in doing that um, how do you feel your relationship has changed with Victoria having to get to know someone so intimately and to write about their lives do you feel as though this is now a lifetime friend or the first of many you plan to interview when you continue your work um good question too 
a little bit of background on me and Victoria is that this is a person that I've known since we were like six years old. photos for this actually we found a photo of us in like first grade which is where we met and it was from like a puzzle day and that's like probably my earliest memory of her is that we were like doing a dinosaur puzzle together (laughs) in our first Mm -hmm. grade classroom so she already was a lifelong friend but to your point doing this kind of project where you're interviewing someone so like in depth and so many times and on so many very personal and vulnerable topics you definitely do get to know that person a lot more because you're sort of like forced to talk about those things sometimes Mm -hmm. in like a friendship you don't get too much into like you don't want to push anyone too far or whatever it is (laughs) or you just don't have the um I don't know the right word but I guess you just almost like capacity like you're like you don't really have the emotional um like it's it's a lot to talk about these sort of heavy things and sometimes you just don't want to think about it yeah I totally get where you're coming from that my friends are the exact same way we're we're so hard to like talk about any sort of feelings about anything yeah sometimes it's just you don't want to like push someone too far if it's a very like personal thing you don't want to push them to their breaking point yeah right just being very careful about the way that you're talking about that kind of thing, you know? So um, this process sort of just like put us in the room together and we were having those in-depth conversations about stuff in her life that I'd never heard about before. And Professor Madrasa, you might remember that I had the book reading back in May when I finished the project, which was super, super cool. It was like one of the best days ever. But Victoria talked for a little bit before I got interviewed by the people who were there. And she was even saying that these were a lot of things that she hadn't told me yet. And she was even surprised by that just because we had never had the chance to talk about those things before. So it was a really, really cool opportunity and a lesson that sometimes the people that you're literally the closest to in life you could ask so many more questions and you could get so much. You never like fully know somebody. There's always something new to find out or understand on a deeper emotional level. And I find that beautiful, honestly. I do. I find, I found this whole story like breathtaking, like the imagery, everything you were saying, how well you got to know this person. I thought it was just a wow. Like, I felt tears coming down. And I was just like, okay, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. It was <laughs> one of those for me. Um, with anything, what would you like listeners to take away from this story? Hmm, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> one we always ask and what I seem to be never ready for. We believe that art can exist for the sake of art itself. So, you know, it doesn't have to have some sort of moral or, you know, but it, if there's something you want to share, you can, but don't feel like, you know, we never want to imply that art needs to have a message. It's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, its existence in and of itself is meaningful. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think just off of literally my last answer to that question of just asking people around you more questions Mm -hmm. just I don't know I've gone through some loss recently and have been sort of moved by that process of like 
asking the people in your life questions and getting to know the people in your life and savoring the moments that you have with them to sort of like get to know them more. So I think if I could um, ask listeners to do anything, it would be to stay curious about everything and ask a lot more questions. If it's of your family, your friends, even yourself, just looking inward and thinking hard about the things that matter to you, you know? And then another point I think is really important and another reason why I chose this piece particularly is that I think the 9-11 stories that get discussed less are the after effects and with Victoria's dad with the cancer that he went through and I have a ton of family members that also went through health struggles with 9-11 related illnesses and stuff like that. Just um, it's important to remember that people are still going through struggles with that type of stuff today and just want to draw attention to those people and thank them because none of us would be here without them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is a tenet of literary journalism. Um, <clears throat> you know, a, a tenet of of the subgenre is the idea that there's the news, then what? Mm. So it's like a story breaks, but it doesn't just end, right? There's like, there's the news story, then what? And you're handling the then what? And the then what goes on for however long. I mean, yeah. you know, um, and that's exactly, there's not necessarily room for that sort of thing in the newspaper, but there is room for that kind of news in other spaces. And we shouldn't forget about that. Mm -hmm. All right. And with that, Sophia, we just want to thank you so much for being on the show. This was absolutely lovely. And I'm so glad that we got so much more insight into this beautiful piece. Thank you so much. Thank you all for your thoughtful questions and your kindness, as always. Proud of you all, too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sophia. Thank you so much. Thank you. concludes our third episode of the eighth season state of emergency we are all so excited to bring you these stories we are honored to continue amplifying voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from in the creative nonfiction genre you can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching life out loud podcast on itunes soundcloud or youtube we also have an instagram and facebook if you want to get behind the scenes content We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you loved these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Bye. Good night.